0: Blessed greetings of Divine Light and Peace. Assalamu alaikum, beloved brothers and sisters. This is Ihsan, and this is Soul of Islam Radio. LaunchGood has grown from an inspired idea as a faith-based crowdfunding platform seeking to cater to the global Muslim community, to one of the most successful of such platforms in the world, currently close to nearly half a billion in funded projects and campaigns that are seeking to do some type of good in the world. Generosity and giving are hardwired into the faith of al-islam, and in fact, the Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings upon him crowdfunded the very survival of the Muslim community itself early in its history when he reached out to his companions and the faithful to give and to do so generously that they could afford to resist the Meccans who sought to wipe them out and prevent the birth of a community of faith based on the pure worship of of the One God. As we near the 10th anniversary of LaunchGoods operation since its inception, I took the opportunity to sit down with Chris Blaufeld, also known as Abdurrahman by his Muslim name, to discuss the founding and triumphant success of the startup he thought of a decade ago. We discussed the importance of spiritual excellence and identity as they relate to work, the importance of giving and generosity in Islam, The definition of crowdfunding as a cooperative means and method to support and sustain valuable projects, the different types of campaigns that can bring people from all over the world together to support a common goal and purpose, principles of success and entrepreneurship, and more. Beloved brothers and sisters, I hope you enjoy this conversation, especially now as we near the holy and blessed month of Ramadan, which is a month both of generosity and of unity for the Muslim community. These two being keys to our success, both in this world and the next. As-salamu alaykum wa Brother Chris, welcome to Soul of Islam Radio. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And uh, I want to thank you for making the time. I know you've got a very busy schedule, especially with the uh, beautiful and remarkable growth of LaunchCut over the years. Uh, welcome, Chris.
1: Wa alaykum as wa barakatuh. I'm so happy to be here, alhamdulillah. So so- long-time listen- listener, first-time caller.
0: Mashallah. alhamdulillah uh, when we've we've connected over the years at points but uh for whatever reason we never managed to um, set together a time to actually get together and do an interview so I'm happy that we're doing that now and I've seen um, launch good from its inception to its growth now you guys have had incredible uh results I mean now you're this is going to be your 10th year in operation and you guys are I believe last I checked uh over a third uh, of a billion dollars in terms of funding that's gone through your platform, which is incredible. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about, you know, what LaunchCood does, what LaunchCode represents, and you as well as the founder um, and as the creator of this platform, I think it'd be a great opportunity for people to get to know you a little bit more, and uh, and then we'll see where our conversation takes us. So maybe you can start, uh, Chris, maybe just give us a little bit of background about yourself um, and, you know, how you came to Islam. And ultimately, what led you to, you know, being inspired or, or move to start good?
1: There, there is a. Uh, there is a. Since this is a little bit more of a spiritual uh, setting, I'm going to start off with a bit of a spiritual story. So, I was born like my parents are white Americans, um, but my father he received a promotion that required him to move to Kuala Lumpur, uh, Malaysia, and the next year I was born. And my mother has a story, which she's never told me. She's not Muslim man, like, either, uh, but she's never told me. But I've, I've overheard her say it to others that, you know, as I was born, like the events going off at the masjid next to, you know, the hospital. And, you know, many years later, obviously, i become Muslim. And then after college, I decided to go visit Malaysia and kind of rediscover my roots a bit. Um, and I find the hospital and I find the masjid. And subhanAllah, the name of the masjid, I believe, was is, is uh, Masjid abdurrahman and my, my Muslim nickname is Abdurrahman. So I was like, I'm thinking like maybe that's the, all of this is just like from that one moment, you know, um, but at least outwardly, you know, my journey is growing up mostly in New England, like uh, Northeast America uh, to a, uh, like I'm a wasp, like a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant growing up in that community, uh, religion, not really a big part of our lives. Um, You know, maybe go to church on Sunday, maybe Christmas, things like that. When I was in middle school, I followed my older sister into atheism. And I think like for, for many Americans, you know, we, you find this dichotomy between religion and science. Religion only meant Christianity, by the way, I didn't know any other religions. And science, you know, seemed like that was progress, you know, and when I studied Christianity more, I was like, oh, you know, there's so many contradictions, the Trinity doesn't make sense, like, it just didn't add up. So, I ended up becoming, you know, choosing science or becoming an atheist uh, in a sense. And then something, you know, interesting happened. When I was 13, we moved from New Jersey to Massachusetts. We moved next door to a family called the Dans. They had a son, Michael Dan, who was the same age as me. We we're in the same grade. We we're both uh, tennis stars. We we're actually the two best tennis players in our high school. But then the similarities ended. You know, he, he, uh, he was running with a really bad group of kids. He started doing, I think, drugs and alcohol when he was 11 years old. So, yeah, he was pretty much a mess. Um, and, and they, and as the new kid in the school, like he and his friends used to pick on me. So, uh, you know, I just, I really didn't appreciate him at all. Mm-hmm. But then he became Muslim when he was 15. And that itself is a whole story. Maybe one day you can have him on the podcast and he'll share that story. But he became Muslim. His whole life changed. He did a 180. We started to become friends. I was like, what happened to you, Mike? He's like, I'm Muslim. And I said, what is what is Muslim? And so he starts to explain Islam to me. I'm like, well, this makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I'd studied Christianity. That didn't make sense. But this is much more logical. We could say it's much simpler, right? Like there's one God, there's messengers. And those messengers were sent with messages or books. And that's it. So, you know, I liked it. I really wasn't looking for religion. And then I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that book it hit me hard because I think at that point, I was very sheltered growing up, you know, mostly in white communities. I assumed that racism died in 1967 with the Civil Rights Act. And this is pre-cell phone, so we don't have all these, you know, (laughs) captured, you know, incidents of, you know, racist cops every day or whatever it is. Um, I was just so sheltered. I was like, wow, racism is still such a huge issue in America. And how do we get, you know, fix this sickness, this illness? And, and when I was reading Malcolm X's autobiography, he talks about how America needs Islam because nice. it's secure to all of its uh, you know illnesses. And I really felt that um, because racism isn't a problem of laws. That's the symptom. It's a really a problem of hearts that gets expressed outwardly you know, through laws or whatever. Um, and how do you change people's hearts? Well, Islam changed Malcolm's heart and Islam changed my friend Mike's heart. And so now I was like, wow, Islam is actually pretty profound, but I didn't believe in God. And Malcolm's autobiography, maybe you remember this. He himself was searching and he was in prison and he was told, if you take one step towards God, God takes two steps towards you. And I was this young scientist. So I'm thinking that's a hypothesis. I can test that. You know, I, I'll stop eating bacon. I'll stop eating my hot dogs and kielbasa. And, you know, um, oh. that'll be my step, you know, and we'll see what happens Um and I kept studying Islam. Uh, I actually, I started studying much more in depth. Like, what is the the Quran? You know, who wrote the Quran? Surely it's not from God. Someone had to write the Quran. So I, I was asking that, studying that. I, I was dumbfounded. I was like, I could not figure out who wrote the Quran. You know, and then I started studying life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him. And I was like, okay, what was his angle? What was he in it for? You know, and then you realize that. He actually had a very stable life, you know, 40 years old, four beautiful daughters, wife, standing in society. Like, why did he mess it all up? And even when he died, he didn't have anything. You know, he died with like nothing, even though he had access to all these treasures, you know. And so I was thinking, like, you know, what was his motivation? Why was he, you know, why was he doing it? He's not like Napoleon, you know, it's not like this ego trip. So I was really perplexed with Islam the more I studied it. And I couldn't explain it away. And then I learned about some of the, you know, we call them like scientific miracles of the Quran. And I was just, I was like, how could anyone in the desert who can't read or write, how could they have written this book? You know, I was really, really surprised, but I think it also helped me understand that Islam, we don't have to separate our like our mm-hmm. you know, mental facilities and our mind and, and using reason and rationale with our faith. In fact, they're encouraged to go together. And and the final kind of, you know, push for me into Islam was I was reading about death. And at this time, I'm at the end of my junior year of high school. So I'm preparing a lot for my future. Where am I going to go to school? What am I going to study? What kind of career I want to get into? Where in the country I'm going to live? And I realized there's only one thing I'm guaranteed in my future, and that is my death. And I haven't prepared for that at all. And it was just a moment of inspiration, you know, one night where I decided um, if I'm going to die and I am going to die, I want to die as a Muslim and maybe I'm going to die tomorrow. So I should become Muslim today. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, long story short, I became Muslim as uh, I think this June 3rd, 2001. So 22 years ago, almost. Um, how,
0: how old were you at the time? 16. Wow.
1: Yeah. In hindsight, it's so young. Like I'm like, wow, I was 16 and so young. At the time, it didn't feel very young, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I felt like a young man and I could make a rational decision. But it was a great gift, to be honest, to to become so Muslim so young. Now, if you picked up a little bit on the date, I said it's June 3rd, 2001. Uh, you know, and three months later, we had 9-11 happened. Right, right. And it was such a crazy moment for me because, I mean, for a few reasons, Um, the only, like, we didn't have any... Muslims hardly where we lived in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is, you know, Western Massachusetts. So we, we found a teacher from the Hartford Seminary, uh, you know, very beautiful Saudi brother, but you know, he's Wahhabi because that's like kind of the environment you grew up in. So that was our initial kind of flavor of Islam, you could say. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the 9-11 happens and it's a lot of Saudis doing it. And the beard is so big, you know, like Osama bin Laden's beard is so big and he's quoting the Quran and Hadith and like you're a new Muslim. You don't know anything about Islam. No. And you're just seeing like, that looks like a sheikh. Like, he looks like he knows what he's talking about. Is this what Islam is? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And it was really confusing for me, to be mm. honest. Um, I remember going over to Mike's house and just crying. And I was mm. like, I don't know what Islam is. Now, the the, the, the big, big blessing for Mike and myself, we got to go to University of Michigan together in Ann Arbor. And we had, uh, you probably know Dr. Sherman Jackson, and just so many other, you know, great yeah. kind of professors and and community leaders and the MSA and just families, Masajid, etc., that helped me see, you know, what Islam really is and what it's really about. Um, you know, Habib Ali at Jifri at that time he came past through Michigan, did a little mm-hmm. tour. So I, you know, we we start getting exposed to more traditional Islam. We did the Rahla program with you know Hamza Yusuf and Zaychak, etc., and. You know that set me off on my own journey around that time to learn a lot more about Islam to, to know about Muslims and and I try I love traveling so I traveled I think you're in Turkey now right Correct yeah like 2005 I was in Turkey before it became like too much of a a, a tourist destination um and many other places you know alhamdulillah Now professionally I'm studying engineering like and, and I ended up getting a job out in California with Intel the you know microprocessor mm-hmm. or, uh, company and it was good. Like, it's all good, but I just felt like, what a letdown. You know, I, I became Muslim. My, Malcolm X is my hero. I've traveled all the world and I'm like learning Islam. And like, I just show up to Cubicle at 8 a.m., do a bunch of work, go home at five. You know, I'm like, is this what my, like, I'm 22. Like, is this what I'm supposed to be doing in my life, you know? And um, I decided no, basically. Like, I wasn't going to do this. Um, and I went back. I, I, uh, you know, I'm going to just kind of mix the story up a little bit to make it feel sure. better. It's not exactly how it happened, but that's okay. I'm like half Irish, so you you, you got to throw in some blarney to your story. But at, around this time, I was in Jordan studying Arabic at Cosset Institute. Uh, and do you know the brother, Muhammad Mari?
0: No, I don't recall. He's like
1: one of the co-founders of Qasit Institute. But at that time, when I met him, I'm like, man, this guy is a complete package. Like, I want to be like Muhammad because he was, you know, Harvard, Berkeley, you know, degrees, former McKinsey consultant, co-founded this amazing Arabic Institute and, you know, married, beautiful kids. His sheikh is there, half the year in California, half of it in Amman. I'm like, man, you're the, you're the man. Like, how do I be like you? And he said, he gave me great advice. And I gave this to everybody. He said, spend your 20s learning as much as you can. And the challenge, the thing that most people do not do is when you get good at something, force yourself to do something else you know, mm. because growth happens outside your comfort zones. Right. And and I really took that to heart. And he said, when you're in your 30s, it will kind of come together. So my 20s, like, you know, I was an engineer at Intel. I became a high school math teacher and basketball coach. Um, I helped start an Arabic institute called Fawaki uh, in America. Um, and then it's a very weird thing. I might, my life journey is all over the place. But then I became a film producer. We started a film company here in Detroit. We made a film that went to the Sundance Film Festival in 2010 called Bilal Stand. Mm. That was a big deal getting to Sundance, um, and uh, we needed money to finish the film off, and we turned to Kickstarter. So, if those don't know, Kickstarter is one of the biggest and oldest crowdfunding platforms, right. and we were the first Muslims to do a Kickstarter. And I fell in love with Kickstarter. I fell in love with crowdfunding, and I was thinking it'd be so cool if we had a Muslim Kickstarter. And so that was the kind of inspiration initially. uh I wasn't even trying to start it to be honest with you, Hasan. Like. I was asking a lot of people all over, like, do you know anyone working on this? I'm, I'm willing to help. Like, I I didn't even need equity or anything. I just wanted to help get the idea live mm-hmm. and no one was working on it. And then I found one friend who was considering it and I was like, I'm ready to go. Like, like I'm, I'm ready to support you, et cetera. And then he's like, no, nah, you know what? I did an analysis. Like, it's just not a good business idea. It's going to be like way too much work and not enough returns. And, and he's like, but you can do it if you want. And I was like, man, I'm I guess I have to do like the only way it's going to come to life is if I, if I take it on. Mm -hmm. Um, and in in a sense with entrepreneurship and ignorance is bliss because it's definitely been a labor of love. It's been super hard. Um, but Alhamdulillah, like 10 years, we're 10 years in now to launch good. I I feel like I have the best job in the world and I wouldn't change anything in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, even GoFundMe, like we had a meeting with um, the CEO of GoFundMe a few years ago and they straight up asked us would be, would we be interested in selling? Um, and that would be life changing money for sure. Right. Right. And instantly my answer is like, heck no, no way. Cause money, money's just money then data. What are you going to do with it? Right. Um, yeah. Purposes, purpose right. So yeah, Alhamdulillah, uh, yeah, I'm yeah, that's grateful. amazing.
0: That's amazing because, um, you know, the, the, the challenge between purpose versus profit, it's a struggle that a lot of people have and, So, uh, I mean, it it seems to me like this idea uh, settled in your heart or was inspired in your heart, was in your heart. And even though friends and others thought maybe it's not going to be a viable idea, you still felt like you've got to do this. Like it has to be done. Somebody has to do this. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I remember one time I I already mentioned, I I said Arabic in Jordan. I remember one time I was in Jordan, I grabbed a taxi. You know, obviously, I'm like a white American speaking Arabic. So the cab drivers always want to know, what's my story? Like, what why, you know, what are you doing here? And who are you? And um, I explain, you know, I'm American, Muslim, um, my story. And then when he found out I'm American, he starts going off. Oh, America, Shaitan, Israel, you know, like like everything, right? And really upset. Uh, and rightfully so. We have terrible foreign policy, you know, in America. I May mean, God change it. Uh, and we get to my destination, and there's a masjid there, and Maghrib was just starting, and I was like, I'm going to go in the mosque and pray, Maghrib, do you want to come with me? And he's like, you go pray, I'm going to have a smoke. And that was that that kind of mindset I found all over the Muslim world, which is like, we have so many problems, and we're, we're very happy to c- talk about our problems, but we don't feel empowered hmm. to try to solve them, in, even if it's in the smallest ways. And I find that, antithetical to the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you know, that said, he said, you know, give charity, even if it's half a date, or if it's the day of judgment and you can plant a a, a sapling, plant it, even though you'll never get to see it grow, you know, and Mm -hmm. it will never grow because of of the situation. But is this idea of whatever good you can do, you do as a Muslim. And so with crowdfunding, with launch, like the real inspiration for me wasn't about the money. It was about if we at one place A platform that showed so many Muslims around the world proactively, you know, trying to do their thing to make the world a little bit better. We have a storybook of inspiration that the next generation can feed off, and the next generation it grows and grows and grows organically. Um, And you know, Hamla, I think that's exactly what we found with LaunchGood. You know, the the that is the story of LaunchGood. We I remember when we began, in a whole month, we might get three, four campaigns. Right. You know, and I'd be and I'm pretty well connected guy. I'm like calling people and I'm trying to convince them like, oh, you should do a crowdfunding campaign. They're like, what's that? Why would I do it? Now, you know, mashallah, it's it's second nature. And every day we have, you know, probably over a hundred people coming to the website to create fundraising campaigns for something. Right. Um, uh, mashallah. So it's uh yeah, alhamdulillah, you know, it's really Launch is meant to be not a fundraising platform as much an inspiration platform. And I really did feel that this is what our community needs um, is is to speak to like lift up our own self-esteem. You know, right. it's been a rough hundred years, I would say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully it'll start to turn or it is starting to turn. When did you know with LaunchGood that this would this would survive, that this would be viable, and you guys would be I able to was- see this through to success.
1: Probably around three years in. Okay. Um, you know, I'm very blessed with my parents, especially uh, they're both entrepreneurs and successful entrepreneurs. And so my my mother, you know, she gave me advice that you have to give whatever business you're doing about three years to know whether it's going to work or not. Mm-hmm. So like the first year of our film business, it was great. We went to Sundance. We were making all this money, traveling the world. Like we were big shots. You know, like it really seemed like it was we're going to turn this into a major studio. By year three, it was clearly like game over. Like we're done, you know, there's no more money and uh, different reasons. Like it wasn't going to keep going and launch kit. It was like, I mean, I didn't even get paid the first three years, you know? So um, it was financially a struggle, but what we noticed is like every year our revenue was doubling and and I'm a math, you know, I used to be a math teacher. So I know the power of exponential growth that if you just keep doubling, eventually, it's going to really, you know, kind of take off. Mm-hmm. And we saw that around three, year three, um, you know, our revenue started to really uh, hit this growth factor where we could start to pay people, um, you know, because up to that point, other than our developers, almost everybody at LaunchGood was a volunteer. And we tried to raise money from Silicon Valley. We totally failed. We tried twice to do that. We, we couldn't raise any money for our company. Nobody thought it was going to work. But, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, we, yeah, say around year three, was like, okay, no, this is going to work. And today, you know, today we have like about 100 employees and, um, you know, across the world, you know, all paid part-time and full-time. And so um, it, it is working, alhamdulillah.
0: What would you say, Brother Chris, in terms of, so you've traveled the Muslim world, you've interacted with a lot of people, like the gentleman you mentioned, right, the cab driver, and he's complaining about America and all of its problems and foreign policy. And then instead of going into the mosque to pray and turn towards Allah, uh, then the alternative is just to hang out and smoke a cigarette. So on the one hand, there's, let's say, disgruntlement or dissatisfaction with the state of the affairs of the world. And then and then there's the question of faith. And and then turning towards faith to actually move towards some sort of positive outcome or a solution. What would you say in terms of your experience throughout the Muslim world and also with with the work that you guys are doing about the importance of, let's say, leaning first and foremost and turning towards faith as for guidance, for inspiration, um, in terms of making a positive impact in the world rather than purely secular solutions or, or just, you know, just complaint and disgruntlement?
1: It's a good question. You know, I haven't thought about, so I'm I'm thinking, I'm talking as I'm thinking here, which is Mm -hmm. terribly dangerous. You know, this morning, like I got up, uh, I click a button on this water heater. I have like instant hot water to make a nice cup of tea. And, um, you know, I get in a shower and I turn a knob and it's like instant hot water and I can drink that water and it's clean and I can run it for as long as I want. And I get in a car and I like fly down a highway and, you know, we live, I think sometimes we forget how much blessing we live in, right? If if we can, and none, nothing I described in my morning routine is exceptional like in at least in America right and i think most of the modern world most of your listeners like this is like you know even low income people have this the same morning experience we could say but if you compare that to kings from like 2 300 years ago mm-hmm. like the highest of society they didn't have those luxuries right so i think a lot of our problems are not in the material i think it's within the soul mm-hmm. It's really a question I want to ask you. Because There's something I've thought related. I, I know I'm not a, in answer to your question. Forgive me, but uh, why not make this a little bit for my own benefit? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like this thing really bothers me, right? Because the idea of Maslow's hierarchy of needs like, oh, at the very base level, we got to take care of people's, you know, basic needs, food, shelter. And then, you know, it works up, up, up and you get to the top. And then it's like, you know, that's where you know, people can get spiritual enlightenment. And I think about, I'm like, you know, the people in the past had barely anything at the bottom of that that pyramid, but you could find the spiritually enlightened. And in fact, many of the people who have the 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 foundation of their pyramid firmly established, they're the farthest from reaching spiritual enlightenment. Hmm. Um, so I guess you know I'm kind of curious to hear your own take. What would you? How would you answer that? Your own question
0: well, regarding that, right? The hierarchy of needs. Um, I suppose what it points to is that. So, so much of spiritual development takes place under pressure. I say that diamonds are formed under immense pressure and over a period of time. Um, But the way that the hierarchy of needs, I think the way that he's positioning it essentially states that when the base needs are met, right, that frees us to be able to think of higher order needs. But I think the reality is that that doesn't always happen for for most people. But I I think it also has a lot to do with uh, the paradigm in the world that we live in where there is so much emphasis given on the material to the point that you have even religion getting co-opted into what may be called like a prosperity paradigm or prosperity gospel, where your worldly success is a direct reflection, apparently, of your spiritual station and rank. But I remember when I was, when I traveled to Afghanistan some years ago, and, you know, I was taught throughout my life, living, growing up in the West, that your sense of peace and comfort and even your sense of self was dependent on your worldly possessions or rank or status. And I go to a country where that model doesn't really exist, and mm. the poorest of people tended to be surprisingly the happiest of people oftentimes. Yes. And it's a different paradigm, That's and that's a faith-based paradigm because they drew their sense of self and their identity uh, primarily from, from faith and from God rather than from their material achievements and status. So, I mean, you know, I I also remember, right, the verse of the Qur'an in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will not change the condition of a people until they first change what is within themselves. And this is the mistake and I think the error that we fall into often as an ummah in the modern world is that we tend to look towards practical solutions before first dealing with, like you said, the the soul where the real origin of a lot of our problems and and issues stem from. So I mean that's been my observation and I was kind of wondering right if you've if you agreed with that and if that's something that you've seen as well.
1: Yeah, I mean I would, I would definitely agree with that and um th- that's where I think when you talk about, you know, could we find faith-inspired solutions to the problems of the world? Absolutely. But but less the second like less the material problems or more these, you know, the, like the mental health crisis we're facing, mm-hmm. which is it's serious, you know, like so many people are unhappy today yeah you know so many people feel disconnected and um you know like i'm very active on twitter it's fascinating like people are trying to take a scientific approach to it and i really commend them um because they're like figuring out a lot of the pieces but not able to put the whole together Mm -hmm. you know like so one of them now for example is like you know people realizing relationships really matter you know and there's a lot of scientific evidence for that. And, um, the big, big thing I noticed is a, a, a viral thread the other day about alcohol, how like no uh, amount of alcohol is the safe amount of alcohol. Mm. And these are, these are people who are like atheists saying this, you know, and, and it's like, okay, like they're getting the pieces bit by bit, you know, they're, they're getting these pieces, but th- they don't see like Islam has it all together as one package. You know,
0: I'd even seen an article some years ago um, and I've got to find it. Which said that the the bulk of our financial economic problems in the country would be solved if just the wealthy donated two and a half percent of their wealth for yeah and gave that in taxes because the wealth don't the wealthy typically don't pay anything in taxes but this would have been a tax on like actual you know uh, sustained wealth and, I mean, yeah that's- you know I
1: actually did a whole like mathematical model of this when I was a, a math teacher because I was you know I was single I didn't have kids so I had time
0: mm-hmm. so after
1: school I I was working on this and I was like how much would it take to replace our tax revenue if we got rid of the income tax in America and replace the wealth tax? And it was almost like exactly two and a half percent. I think even less, like wow. it was like 2%. Wow. And if you ask me, like, would I rather pay 2% of my wealth or, you know, th- 25% on my income? Like, yeah, definitely take 2% of my wealth, you know, um, mm-hmm. much more manageable, yeah, uh,
0: much more fair,
1: much more fair. And, and, and from people- an economic standpoint, it's, it makes sense. You don't want to, you know, t- uh, taxes are a penalty that um, influence behavior. It de incentivizes mm. something, right? right? And so, if you tax income, you de incentivize earning, which is the opposite of what you want to do in an economy. But if you tax wealth, you de incentivize hoarding, which is a great thing to do.
0: Mm. Well, and for people that don't that don't may not know, my right, two and a half percent is is the amount of zakat that is required as a pillar of Islam. So it's like a very specific and uh, perfect apparently number that even now like you said scientists will say this is what should be happening um for people that don't know uh, brother chris um and i think most people are aware at this point but just maybe briefly explain what is crowdfunding
1: oh it's a great question uh crowdfunding is bringing a crowd of people together to fund something right so um in the past, taxes, what we are talking about, taxes, taxes, I guess, technically are a form of crowdfunding, right? We're taking money. but Forced that's, crowdfunding. Yeah, forced crowdfunding, involuntary crowdfunding, right? Like yeah. taking money from you. But, you know, what we, when people talk about crowdfunding today, um, at least donation-based crowdfunding, what we're mostly talking about is, you know, um, there's a crisis in Turkey and Syria. There's an earthquake. You know, a lot of people like, you know, died and are suffering. So people, you know, raise money, they all chip in money and and donate and try to help a cause, right? Or maybe you have a friend who's sick and they need to get a medical treatment that they have difficulty affording. So you all chip in some money to help them pay for that treatment. So, you know, that's crowdfunding. Um, It can also be in a very proactive way. It doesn't always have to be, you know, um, sad circumstances that lead to it um so we have over i think in, in your neck of the woods are you, you in istanbul now
0: no i'm actually in the south at the moment
1: in, in the south but yeah. uh I, I think you probably know Sidi Harun Sugic, right
0: oh yes yeah in fact we had him on the podcast uh just uh last year
1: mashallah so i'm sure he talked about his book series the exemplars you know mm-hmm. yeah that um, was the topic it, that was the topic that's what i figured yep actually i think i remember seeing that now um you know that was proud for right, proud this. They want him and uh, Peter Abdullah named Sanders, they want to put together this, uh, you know, we could say mini biographies of just incredible Muslim uh, saints from recent history, but it costs money, this stuff, yeah. you know, you got to pay people to write the stories, to edit the stories, to put together the book, to manufacture the book, to ship the book, like it's a lot of, you know, these things aren't free. Um, and they did a crowdfunding campaign on LaunchGood that raised, you know, over $80,000, which you know, played a big part in, in bringing that series to life. So, crowdfunding can be used a lot of ways, but mm-hmm. its essence is bringing together a group of people to fund something.
0: What a brilliant platform to, to make things like this possible. So, over your time with LaunchGood, what are some of the um, what are some of your favorite crowdfunding uh, programs that have that have been done, and what have been maybe some of the most interesting?
1: You know, it used to be so easy for me to answer this mm-hmm. in the early days of launch good, because in the for years, one, two, three, every single campaign, I either coached it or my co-founder Manny Calawi, she coached it. So we knew everybody, we knew every campaign, like it was very intimate for us. Now, you know, mashallah, it's like grown so big. So I don't know the vast majority of the people, uh, and I feel, you know, I'm, this is just a preface. I'm going to answer your question, but I feel bad even answering this question because there's probably mm-hmm. so many amazing ones that I don't even know about um, because I, I'm, you know, operating at a different level for the company at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I will say, you know, there, there's, um, so definitely, you know, the exemplars and I would say even before that, the meetings with mountains booked by Peter Sanders.
0: Right. Yeah. In fact, I met you, I saw you at the book launch for that in, in Detroit at the time. That's right. That's, yes. that's where we last connected. Yeah.
1: That's right. Um you know, that was just like, so humbling for me, because this is somebody who spent their life, you know, in in that case, Peter Sanders, 50 years or so photographing these people. And this is his kind of penultimate work. And he's relying on us to bring it to life. And he's really, you know, at that point, like, he's really worried, like, like, oh, he needs at least 50,000 pounds, I think it was. And he's thinking, that's so much like, there's no way now how are we going to do this? And Alhamdulillah, it's, I know it's not a lot, you know, for someone with that sort of reputation in the community, and we're able to help fund it. So we do one small thing, and we get to be part of a historic project. Mm. Um, And we've had so many of those, I I think meetings with mountains is one great example. The other ones, you know, it's kind of inspired by tragedy, which is always sad. There are two that come to mind. Uh, One is just recently with the Turkey response. So, um, you know, a terrible, terrible earthquake in Turkey and, um, right away my team, you know, and I think it happened. I mean, you were there. I, I mean, you must've felt it, right?
0: Fortunately, I was just outside of the, um, affected area. Uh So where I am now is not on the fault line. Um, so fortunately, I mean, I'm, I'm only a few hundred miles away from, from the place, but you know, where I am, didn't get hit directly, but, but we, we experienced it you know, of course, just in the environment in terms of people and the reaction and the losses. And it, it
1: happened, what was it, like, pleasure time or something on a Monday yeah, morning? Yeah. So I was asleep. You know, this was like our Sunday night. But because we have a global team, you know, we have people in the UK and Turkey and Lebanon and Malaysia, Australia, etc. We're asleep. The earthquake happens. My team immediately puts together, starts putting together an effort Um, To respond to this. Right. And we don't do any of the work ourselves. We're just the medium that people, you know, use. So um, they start connecting with charities, they start connecting with influencers, people start raising money. And I wake up and it's pleasure time. And already, you know, um, there's multiple campaigns, thousands of dollars raised. And uh it ended up, I think right now we're almost at $10 million raised through hundreds of various efforts across the world mm. to raise money, you know, for the victims and 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 uh the rebuild over there in Turkey, okay. um, including some really like, you know, cool influencers. And, and that's you know beautiful to see that you have like the Ertogo Actor engine using Launch Good to raise money, you know, to to lend his name to try to help raise mm-hmm. support for this. And so um It's a terrible incident um we can't prevent that but i'm very inspired to see that you know our team is at least you know uh, able to do that like come together move really fast and help immediately uh, empower the community to start raising you know funds to support the relief effort um so that was a very recent one that, that comes to mind as well
0: you know i think one of the questions that comes up um for people when they are presented with an opportunity to donate or support to a Crowdfunding campaign is—is is this legitimate? And I'm wondering if um, there are things in place structurally with, like, for example, a crowdfunding platform like LaunchGood that helps to reduce or mitigate that risk. Um, and any advice you can give just on that topic for people that that again or might be hesitant to to contribute to a crowdfunding campaign?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So there's uh, the first thing I would say about this is like you should only give to something that you trust. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you see a stranger and you see money on the internet, I, you know, no matter how good the story is, don't just assume it's true. Right. Um, uh, we've seen at least on like a, sometimes on other platforms, GoFundMe, these like really incredible stories. And then it turns out the whole thing was like a fraud. Um, so you should always only trust, like donate to those things you trust. If it's by an organization or people you trust, or if you have a friend, let's say sharing it, you can ask them like, why do you, you know, are you sure this is legit when it comes to launch good itself? Um, we actually have to be super strict. So even with Turkey, I mean, this was really sad in a way um, for me personally, but probably half of the charities that were trying to fundraise for Turkey, we had to reject. And the reason we had to reject them is um, in a lot of cases, they're small charities, they're on the ground, they're doing really good work, but they don't have the documentation, the audits, the proof of execution of funds, et cetera. That meet the standard of our compliance team, and their one bad apple could get us completely shut down as a platform. Right, um, and so we do have to be extra strict on launching. Now, the plus side of that is, if you're a donor, I would have a lot of confidence donating on donating on launch good because I I know how strict we are. Um, even recently, like Imam Zaychakar, he's supporting uh, this brother in Puerto Rico, and. Um, my compliance team was asking for all this document receipts and stuff to show that the thing that he's, this brother in Puerto Rico needs, you know, assistance with is real. And Zaid's like, wait, I'm not like, you know, I'm not like enough of a kind of witness, you know? And I'm like, okay, like guys, we can trust Imam Zaid, you know, inshallah, let's, let's not maybe be as strict with this one, but I know my, my team is very uh, strict. We do make exceptions. Like if it's a first time sometimes we'll be like, okay, we'll let you raise money now. But before we're going to let you come back a second time, you've got to prove that you actually use the money we you raised to launch good the first time. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I will say all of that said, I'm, this is a controversial take. I don't believe our religion and I could be totally wrong. So please interject. Um, I don't believe our religion actually teaches us to worry too much about the impact and follow through of our charity. Yeah because it's the act the actual act of giving itself is the charity you know like Aisha you know she would perfume her coins before Mm -hmm. she'd give her sadaqah like it's not she doesn't it's like who it doesn't even matter who that person asking money is it's like this is a gift I'm giving to God you're just that means for that and there's one of the stories I believe from the children of Israel of you know a, a man who intended to give charity and I'm just going to make it quick, but like, you know, one night he goes out and gives it to a man, turns out it, w- it was a thief. So the next night he gives out to this woman, turns out she was a prostitute. Third night, he goes out, gives it to a really old man. And it turns out he's actually the wealthiest man in town. And he feels like such an idiot, like I'm trying to give charity, and I keep giving it to the wrong people. And then the angel comes and tells him, you know, actually the charity gave to the thief got him to stop his thievery and the charity gives prostitute. You know, she's just doing that support of family. Now she's able to leave that. And the charity you give to the rich man, he, he's richer than you and he felt ashamed. And now he's giving so much charity because of your act. So sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, we do things and we're like so focused on impact. You know, imagine if someone, you, you know, charity gave you donor play. Oh yeah, donation you gave, um, it funded a brothel. He'd right? <laughs> be like, what? No, like, you know, like the opposite of I'm doing a charity. But, you know, the, it's the act of giving itself, which is the mm-hmm. real
0: uh, yeah. virtue
1: and value of the charity that we give.
0: Right. And I'm glad you mentioned that too, because a lot of times we uh, we may slip into feeling that we have to judge and make a, make a judgment call on whether something is valid or not valid, whether it's deserving or not. And my teachers have always emphasized it's not our concern for the most part. I mean, if something is blatantly obvious, of course, right, common sense. But for the most part, like you said, right, it, the intention is to give for the sake of Allah. And that's our portion. And you're fulfilling then, you know, the incentive to to give in charity. And that is what Allah is pleased with. So I, I would 100% agree with you on that. So what are some ways that people can use crowdfunding? Or what are some, you know, various examples of different crowdfunding campaigns? Right. One would be like a crisis and, and emergency response that somebody's basic needs or, or a group's basic yeah. needs must be met. Um, you mentioned the example of uh, a couple of elders within our Books community and, and publishing you know, what else we
1: covered, we covered some good examples with the one i didn't mention which i believe is actually the most valuable type of crowdfunding is supporting the development of individuals so you asked me what you know early i, I didn't uh, i gave you some answers but you asked me what my early like favorite crowdfunding campaigns are there are some that i'm sure will be my favorite crowdfunding campaigns but not yet because we've had some campaigns where we supported like you know brilliant young people in Indonesia and Palestine, get to go to Carnegie Mellon, get to go to Oxford, do degrees, do pro- leadership programs. And I'm like, mm-hmm. maybe one day, because we brought this person from you know Jakarta to Cambridge, they'll you know become the Prime Minister of Indonesia, and they're going to have this incredible positive impact in the world. And it's all because some people put together a few thousand dollars for that person's development. It's, uh, you know, I think of it as like the Salman al-Farsi effect, mm. right? That we know the companion, uh, there's a companion of Prophet Muhammad, his name is Salman al-Farsi, Salman the Persian. And he was a slave. He was a slave in Medina. No family connections, no no intrinsic value. You know, if you think about what is his value outwardly to the community, it just seems like no value there. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi actually crowdfunded mm-hmm. with his companions to get the money to free him. And you might think, oh, there's so many better ways we can use the, the uh, community resources. You know, Masjid Nebu, we never even had a, a full roof and never even had like, you know, a paved floor or something. Right. Like mm-hmm. there's so many ways you can think we can use that money as a community, maybe better, quote unquote, than freeing a slave. But because they freed Salman, what was Salman Instrumental later on down the line,
0: the the battle, yes, battle of the trench. Yeah, you no, know, the
1: largest army ever assembled in history, of Arabia, came to wipe out Islam and Medina, and it was this freed slave that had the strategy to free, you know, save the Muslims. Inshallah. And so I think about that a lot, you know, even myself as a convert. There were just a couple of things in my life, very small, that made a very big difference. You know, I think one of them, studying Arabic in Jordan that summer, Alhamdulillah, mashallah, I got a scholarship. You know, if I didn't get that scholarship, there's no way I could have afforded it. Um, and then doing the Rehba program. And I literally used like every dollar I'd saved up from odd summer jobs for like two, three years to be able to pay for that. But those two, you know, incident program, like things changed my life. Yeah. Um, and and making the Hajj, uh, I'd add that, like I made Hajj in 2009. And I, I think a lot of the work I do today is a result of the du'as at that Hajj. And so these are small things, like a few thousand dollars each. That um, have set me up for success, and inshallah, that's a success that the community, the global Muslim community, gets to share in, and that's what I would love to see more on launch. Good. Like, if there's one mm-hmm. thing I'd love to see a lot more on launch, good, is individuals going out there and raising money to help, you know, prepare uh, or, or set up for success yeah. in the future generation.
0: Inshallah, just individuals, just on a practical level. I mean, if we looked at it, that investment in Sayyidina Salman al-Farsi or the Lohan. I mean it turned out to be the best investment possibly because he helped to save the Muslim community at that point if they hadn't dug the ditch based on his suggestion and would the um have survived even so exactly. that's a that's a great example um and I'm, I'm I'm actually really happy to hear this this idea too right this idea to invest in in individuals even so yeah. I've seen some things coming along the lines of right investments because you know the reality is right sacred knowledge studying knowledge even, It's not an easy task it's not an easy endeavor let alone being employed once you've devoted you know four six eight years or or more to that it's very difficult to you know take care of your family at that point oftentimes especially in the western world or maybe anywhere now so that's a that's a great um you know opportunity as well for people to to support the those who will hopefully god willing inshallah help preserve this religion in the world
1: and it's such an honor for us Supporting them too, right? I think there's mm-hmm. a, a, you know, better than me, but a story um, or a hadith with the Prophet Muhammad Sassan where somewhere. There's two brothers. Maybe one of them was spending his time studying with the Prophet, and the other was working in the marketplace so he could earn money to subsidize his brother mm-hmm. to study. You know, and it's like the the one who's doing that gets the full reward of of the one that's studied too, or sure. you know, is even better in a way. So yeah. we all have a role to play, but you know, without. You know this. The Prophet said, sure. "You know, the uh, scholars are the inheritors of the Prophet." You know, and so if we don't support sacred knowledge and those study, and then what, we, what? What do we even have
0: left? Hmm. That's amazing because a lot of times, right? People will wish, or or have, or, or wonder, right? In terms of the work that they're doing, that if it's valuable versus, let's say, becoming a student of knowledge and and following that path, they're having to deal with the real the the practical world more so. And um and that's a great example too that you shared, because if they're able to then fund and support the the faith, the religion, uh, goodness, piety, righteousness in the world, they're getting the reward of that. So one of you know our sheikh would alf, often point to the example of uh Abu Bakr as siddiq One of the reasons he had such a high rank is because he gave so much to in terms of his wealth just to fund the survival of the Islamic Ummah and the survival of the Prophet sallallahu and so on. So this brings us to one last maybe point that I'd like to discuss with you, and it has to do with identity and work. We we had a brief chat about this earlier, and um, the idea that you know people's identity uh, often gets, or, or nowadays especially, people want their identity to be uh, deeply integrated with the work, and that may not, may or may not always be the case. You know, previous generations just simply worked, but now yeah. we have this much stronger apparently apparent need to make our work meaningful. And aligned with, let's say, our purpose and who we are. What would you What would you say about this topic, uh, Brother Chris, and with your experience, yeah, you know, especially we working? Talked, right? We
1: talked about a little earlier, but like a new thought pop, popped in my mind, which is, um, mm-hmm. you know, pre-industrial revolution. I think people were actually more defined by their work, mm-hmm. right? That you have people their names, like you'll see it over mm-hmm. there, like their names had that. Like their i like literally their name is iron worker right like that's what they did they worked iron or um, oh. you know najab like carpenter right? right so they were carpenter and like that was their family name and but it's it's different like you know and then industrial revolution people just cogs in machine you know they're just like whatever working on assembly line they they don't really take on the identity of their uh, employer per se. Mm-hmm. And um today in the world we live in, like, you know, most uh, people let's say if they go to college and come out of college, they'll join Googler, they'll be Google and they'll be a Googler, right? Or they join Launch Good and they're Launch Good or um and there's some something nice in that, but I think there's something dangerous, even with a company like Launchpad, that if people like it can be dangerous to associate your identity and especially let's say your religious values too much with your your company, um, because They could even end up using it as a crutch for everything, for their social life or their sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, I think there's nothing wrong with finding meaning and purpose with your job, even if it's, you know, like we talk about baking bread, right? And historically, that was actually something you'd find as very common is that people saw Ihsan in their work, regardless of what it was. You know, it didn't have to be religious work, quote unquote, to be meaningful and rewarding. Um, it was the perfection of their work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people are missing a little bit. They're looking for the meaning in their work by the actual function of the company. Um, and I think they need to find the meaning of work in the execution of their work, regardless of what it is. Yeah. And that's a trend, uh, and we talked about it, but you know, for the sake of the podcast, it's really interesting and to me, an alarming trend of one of the things we're seeing happen in the world today. Um, So, you know, I'm I'm subscribed to a newsletter called Morning Brew. It's sort of like a business publication for millennials. And their 2022 word of the year or phrase of the year was quiet quitting. You know, this idea that about a third of American employees are actively disengaged from their work. So they basically quit on their job without formally quitting. They're just going to keep taking a paycheck as long as they can. And when I think about that as a as a Muslim, it's just like it's so antithetical. Like you, you should feel a sense of responsibility if you're collecting a paycheck, for example, like there's an amana there. There's a trust there. Um, and then also like just it feels so unfulfilling to me. Like if you're just going into a job every day um and you don't even enjoy what you're doing, or you're not even like trying to do it with a hassan, what's the point? Mm-hmm. You know, your life is um, you know, the way you act in your work is going to affect how the rest of your life is. Yeah. And the thing that I love about you know, so many of these stories of of old, we could say. You know that, um, and it's not even old. Like probably where you live, like you you can see it in in front of you. Is that people have very basic jobs, but they really care about the work that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 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 image that's coming to my head. I remember my um, my one of my Moroccan teachers talked talking about the leather workers in Fez. You know, have you ever visited where they make the leather in Fez? I haven't. The pictures are famous. They, you know, like they, they can see from they're on the rooftops, they have all these dot like little pools of different dyes and they're tanning the leather and dyeing them. And it's very cool. But if you actually go there, it smells horrible. Have you heard about this? Or do you know what I'm talking about? No, no. Oh, it smells really, really bad because the way they break down the the leather hide is with um basically like I think pigeon uh droppings right uh-huh. like the the, the the poop from birds is it has acidity that's able to soften the hide and stuff so it smells really really bad in fact when you go up there they give you like a chunk of nana like mint and you're supposed to hold it under your nose otherwise you can't tolerate it um, so it looks really cool it smells really bad but the people that work there and they're spending all day like in this you know bird poop soup um, at the end of it, like they go to the hammam, they scrub themselves down, they put on the itar, they put on the nice clothes mm-hmm. and you have no idea they just spent their whole day working in like effectively garbage mm-hmm. because they're doing it with Ahsan. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I think it doesn't matter what you're doing. You, you can be working at LaunchGood, you can be working at, you know, your your local garbage collecting agency. But um, if you do your work with Ahsan, you find Ahsan in the process of your work, you will find Ihsan in your life.
0: Mashallah. That's beautifully said uh, and probably a good place for us to to end here too because you know the way that the Prophet of Allah described the religion in the Hadith of Jibreel, that there is this understanding of Islam at the level of Islam, which are the pillars, and then Iman, which are the beliefs, but ultimately aspiring to this Maqam al-Ihsan, which is what I would translate as excellence or spiritual excellence, in which one is always aware of the presence of god and so he's always with us right and so it's it's the work that we do if we bring that ihsan into it as you and i've actually made a few videos on this um it becomes a form of worship it becomes a form yes. of respect to allah that this is the means through which he is providing us our sustenance something he's given to us and i've remarked on this since i've been in turkey because i've noticed in, in the us for example because it's primarily often the the psychology is profit driven in a lot of the things that people do i've noticed that once a business becomes successful and then it it grows and it ex- duplicates or franchises and you just see the quality you know rapidly diminishing um as they open up more stores or more branches or more chains and um the interest isn't there to maintain the level of excellence right because now it's become a part of this machine operating system that is just designed to turn out income whereas i see here you can go to places often years later and the quality is the same they still maintain their quality Mm -hmm. you know there's still the love in what they do right and so that's what makes the difference ultimately i think it's a great place for us to to end actually brother chris because you know when we when we bring love into the work that we do it becomes not only a form of worship but it also then transmits something to people that receive that and um Mm -hmm. That's a, maybe that's a meta level identity with the work that we do yeah. in terms of, you know, people, for example, working at Launchpad. right? They're, they're doing something in the ummah, doing it with excellence to support people within the ummah, to support the ummah. Um, something greater gets transmitted in that process. Yeah. Does that does that make sense the way I'm trying to explain it? does.
1: It? Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and in fact, I love the way you, phrase, you, you framed it, which is there's a certain love that gets passed on.
0: Yeah. and I, and, and then it's received too. It's very different when you go to and when you receive a product or even a meal from somebody that created it with love versus somebody that just did it to sell an item. It's a big difference yeah. in terms of the way it's received. And it, it it inspires the individual then to also live their life with excellence and with love.
1: May um, Allah you know, protect us and help us. You just got me thinking about all this automation and how... You know, we get machines to make our drinks now, and soon machines mm. will be making our food, and labs will be making the meat. And it's like, where where does SN get to enter the process? The human connection get to enter the process anywhere now?
0: Yeah, that's that's a that'll be a whole another discussion, especially with AI now stepping in. <laughs> We're outsourcing pretty much uh, everything, even our thinking. It looks like, but wow. yeah. Mashal, it's been wonderful to to reconnect, uh, Chris. And um, I pray that you guys, inshallah, hit your goal. What's next for you and what's next for LaunchGood?
1: Well, we have uh, Ramadan's coming up, right? So in the short term, that's the big, big thing for us. So it's a great time, actually. We have this very cool thing. I'd encourage anyone to sign up for it called the Ramadan Challenge, where people sign up to automate their donations for 30 days. Hmm. Uh, Tens of thousands of people participate. So millions and millions of dollars are generated for charities across the world which is really great we have a couple of new things which are very exciting uh one is an ios app is coming out uh inshallah very soon i'm uh-huh. sure that was our first we never had an app you know it's always been a website but it's going to be an app very soon and, and we're excited about that um and then the other thing which is live now people can check it out is called give with uh give and give with is um it's a new it's a very you know, kind of creative product. I don't know if it'll work. We'll find out. Uh, We just released it. But the idea is just like you follow people on social media, you can sign up to give with people through LaunchGood. So Mm -hmm. I could sign up to give with you, Ehsan. Like let's say I sign up to give $10 with you. Um, That means anytime you're making a donation on LaunchGood, you can add $10 from me if you choose. Mm -hmm. Um, and a matching uh, donation. yeah. So like right now I have, you know, I shared it with a few of my friends. I have about $109 of give with following personally. So anytime I want to make a donation on launch good, I can add $109 to it automatically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of cool way of showing your support for your friends, um, with big, big followers. you know, like kind of big influencers. Mm-hmm. It might, like I, I imagine some like Mufti Menk might be able to generate a give with of thousands of people maybe, mm-hmm. um, which could mean, you know, if he's making a donation, he might be able to tag on $50,000 to it, which is life-changing, but it, it, it's not any one person giving the 50000 It might be spread right. across 5,000 people. So um, that's a kind of cool product that people yeah. want to see what's new on Launch good. That's that's new, givewith.launchgood.com.
0: That's a great idea, especially when you have people with large followings and that people trust them and what they do even a $5 yeah. donation from then then could be significant towards a massive change towards a project or an individual. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and you know, the more I think we work together as a community, the more we will be successful. Yeah. You know, there's, I think that hadith, that God is with the group, uh, Allah, Allah al jama'at, you know, God is yeah. with the group and we have to be a group. Like if we don't, if we're not a group, then God's not with us. You know, I think that's right. another meaning to that.
0: Ashallah and, and again, much success, more success to you guys because uh, I see you as a force for um, encouraging positivity and unity within the ummah, right, and, and moving way. people towards excellence to to be open hearted, to be generous, which are core principles of our faith and religion. I wish you. you guys success, and inshallah, you meet your goals and your targets. Amen. You know, and and the beautiful thing I think also with what you're doing, Brother Chris, is that your goals directly translate into the amount of benefit that that this people in the ummah will actually experience so may Allah grant you guys much more success
1: I mean I mean thank you so much
0: thank you as well inshallah and uh where can people find you launchgood.com any other links launchgood.com
1: and uh personally I'm pretty active on twitter so if you go on twitter if I'm at ar blavel um ar is for abdurrahman so AR Blauvelt, uh at Twitter and uh, otherwise on LaunchGood. And, you know, we have an amazing team in LaunchKit. Like they're all over the world. Um, If we could ever help somebody, you know, especially start a fundraiser, you just go to our website, you'll find a little chat button. We're going to take care of you. It'll be really a great, great experience, inshallah.
0: Wonderful. JazakAllah Khairun. Sidi Abdurahman. And inshallah, inshallah. Hopefully we'll reconnect at some point for another conversation.
1: Follow-up. Inshallah. Right. As-salamu wa
0: I pray that you enjoyed and benefited from this discussion and episode on soul of Islam radio to help us continue to bring you these meaningful conversations regarding spiritual development and faith do us a favor and give us a positive review wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast and if you can think of at least one person who may benefit from this content share this episode with them to learn more about launch good And with God's will and light, find a campaign that aligns with your values and that you could contribute to for the sake and pleasure of Allah Almighty or to learn how to start a crowdfunding campaign of your own, head over to launchgood.com for more information and to become part of the New Muslim Project. To further connect with me and to continue the conversation, please visit us at soulofislamradio.com. With the will and grace of God, I look forward to connecting with you soon to your divine and eternal success.